Welcome everyone back to the Bold Beautiful Borderline podcast. It's your host Sarah and Lori and today we're here with a fellow Oregonian which is very exciting. Um, Not someone I've met in real life yet but that will inevitably happen I promise. Um, We are here with our friend Jadzia which not French name, um, name based on Star Trek, which is super cool and cute. So we're going to have to get the backstory, but, um, Jadzia is here today to talk to us about her experience with PTSD, um, and the kind of like overlapping or inherent connection that that has with, um, borderline personality disorder. And she actually doesn't have a formal, diagnosis of BPD, which is really interesting for us because she's done DBT and has responded really well to it. So we're going to talk today just about like, yeah, the connection between trauma and um, BPD symptoms or traits or full-blown diagnosis and kind of see like what she thinks about it. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. I'm really excited to have you here. Also, your sweater is so cute. Thank you, Macy's. Oh, really? Yeah, it, I was yeah. thinking the same. I was like, um, can I buy that? <laughs> it has like Pendleton vibes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do they have Pendleton wool in Canada, Lori? Or is that uh, like a... I don't know what that word is, but like the, like the yes, but I didn't know that that was the word for it, if that makes sense. Like based on what you're like, show, like what the jacket looks like. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Pendleton is like a specific brand, but has that kind of vibe of like a Southwest design kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. We definitely don't have that, but we also don't have Macy's. So I really can't get that jacket. (laughs) That's true. Um, yeah. Introduce yourself. Tell us about who you are. Give us just like a brief overview of, of yourself and your life and let's get into it. Uh, well, my name's Jadzia. I have a brother and a sister and kind of just like the normal childhood upbringing. Um, My parents were super religious, and I kind of was just always the helper child to the rest of the family. That's always been my thing was to kind of help other people, and kind of working in healthcare, I guess I do the same thing. Where were you in the birth order? I am the middle child, but I always would tell my mom that I'm actually the oldest. (laughs) And what kind of work do you do in healthcare? Um, I'm currently um, working in hospice and I kind of work as medical records, clerical stuff. I really like numbers. That's awesome. I hospice is like such an important area of healthcare. And I just have so much respect for anybody who works in that field. Cause like, literally the most important I honestly didn't ever think that it would be something that I would do considering back looking at death was coming from a different viewpoint so like the the change to kind of embracing death but in a completely different way was kind of cool yeah I bet yeah and like as someone who's like lost people, like my grandfather had, um, really severe Alzheimer's and he was like six foot four. So like 
and like big guys. So you need good hospice workers, right? Because like, if a person becomes aggressive or whatever, and they're that big, they can be dangerous, but like his hospice staff were literally like life saving people, like just changed the entire grieving process, especially for my mom. Um, so fill us in, you are here. So I originally got connected with you for the pod because I knew that you had done a DBT program. So tell us kind of like about what brought you to DBT and, um, yeah, fill us in on mental health stuff. So I've kind of like always struggled with it, but since I was like the middle child, um, I would always like not even like think about it like my sister was the one she was diagnosed with um that's also another interesting story she was diagnosed with bipolar at 16 and I know you don't diagnose that until like you're an adult so 18 plus right um that's up for debate in Canada they do diagnose under the age of 18 is what Lori said I mean, I definitely know people that have been diagnosed under okay. the age of 18, but I, I mean, sometimes depending, like it's like borderline, right. You're not supposed to diagnose that until you're 18, but sometimes like really severe cases, people diagnose early. Yeah. yeah. It depends. And in my Google, when we were recording our episode with Gwen the other day, from the perspective of the States, because like, I've never known anyone diagnosed prior to 18. I've never diagnosed anyone prior to 18. They kind of said the same thing, like in very significant cases where you need the diagnosis to maybe get specific treatment methods, then yes, you will see it diagnosed underage, but generally no. And it, it could be the fact that I was young, but, and it's not my story to tell, but I don't remember a lot of um, things that would draw me to believe that it should have been diagnosed then just from an outsider's perspective. Um, but I've always been kind of like the helper. So then when I finally was able to say, Hey, I'm really sad all the time and I have no, no reason to be sad. Um, I took time off work and I found a psychiatrist and me and the psychiatrist did not get along at all. And she's actually who um, told me about DBT to begin with. She's like, I really think it would be beneficial to you. I'm like, I hate you. You're terrible. I don't want to talk to you. Do you mind me asking like, what about her had that relationship? Because like, that's not an uncommon <laughs> uh, relationship really? dynamic. Yeah. Um. So I had told her that I was starting to, um, self-harm and that is probably why I was definitely in like that era of like are we allowed to cuss on here yeah okay we can't help it we all have BPD okay (laughs) yes (laughs) like like fuck you why are you telling me this like I don't need that type of help I'm fine um so I put it off and I ended up signing up for DBT. I was in it for about three to four months and then I quit. And I was like, this is stupid. I hate this. The therapist that I had in it, we did not get along. And then I kind of took time away from it, came back to it, and then I completed DBT. 
And it has been one of the most like life-changing things that I've ever done. (laughs) And in your DBT program were, was, so I guess borderline personality disorder diagnosis wasn't a requirement. Were there a lot of people in your program who didn't have the diagnosis? We were actually never allowed to talk about the diagnoses that we had. That's interesting. I've heard that from a lot of people as well. And I kind of hate that, to be honest. I think that's really dumb, but um, yeah, just like super curious. Obviously you don't know the answer, but like whether or not they would have or not. They just told us. Sorry, go ahead. They just told us that we were all in it for something different and it could be BPD. It could be PTSD and it could be like um, addiction recovery. But just that we were supposed to respect everybody's um, moments. Fair enough. I just tell you guys like a really funny story. It's funny looking back now, but like untreated Sarah did not think it was funny. Um, When I started DBT, my ongoing therapist, who was fabulous and like literally saved my life was like, listen, Sarah, you have to do this. It's time. Like my only requirement for you is that you keep going. Like you just stay in the chair. You don't have to do any of the homework, but like you just need to attend. And there was this gal who was in the group program with me and, you know, you get friendly with people or whatever. And we were all like sitting at the table before the group facilitator showed up and it was quiet and she was talking to me. And in front of like 10 other group members, she just goes, do you have borderline personality disorder? And I was like, (laughs) I could kill this bitch right now. I was so mad. And I literally just looked at her and I was like, I'm not going to answer that question. So you finished the DBT program. You found it helpful. I finished it and I found it extremely helpful. I still see the same therapist. Um, she no longer works for that program either, but um, we have kind of got a good relationship. I see her for like maintenance sessions once or twice a month. Um, yeah, kind of. Was there anything like particularly helpful that like stands out to you from DBT? And just, I, sh- I hate, I always do this. We should probably always say like dialectical behavior therapy at least once in an episode. <laughs> uh, so DBT is dialectical behavior therapy. If you haven't been listening to the podcast this whole time. Um, but yeah, anything like particularly helpful for you, just given you have PTSD as like a primary diagnosis. Correct. The PTSD is the primary diagnosis. Um, never been officially diagnosed with um, BPD, but the skill check the facts is probably one of the most influential skills for me because I get so caught up in whatever moment is happening. Nothing else matters. Like, oh, your boyfriend didn't mean to say that. Like, he's he's fine. I'm like, no, like this whole... I'm in this moment and I don't want to like be pulled from the moment to actually like examine it from the outside and remembering to check the facts actually kind of gives me a moment to breathe and remember what I'm doing and who I'm even upset at. And why? 
And why? I could be upset for like a year and then be like, oh my God, why was I mad at them again? Like, I literally can't remember, but like, this bitch can hold a grudge. (laughs) Right. When you think about the criteria for BPD, do you feel like maybe it fits for you? Has it ever been offered as like BPD traits or like, do you feel like the PTSD diagnosis only is really accurate? Um, I mean, I've, it has been like offered, but it's never been like, nobody's ever actually like sat down and been like, Hey, you know, you have this. It's more like, Oh, you kind of seem to have it because you do have PTSD and, um, like the disassociation and, um, the unsure about oneself and like, I don't know, just kind of who am I? I'm not quite sure. What about like the strong emotional responses, particularly in like relationships with other people? Kind of like also having like that favorite person. Um, yeah. And what does that that look like for you? That looks like strong, the strong emotional response. Hmm. It, so the other day we were having a conversation and we were talking about, how um we were shopping and I was looking at this shirt and I was like I really like this shirt it's cute and he's like I think that's a hideous shirt that is not a hideous shirt I think it's beautiful and it was like that was such an attack on me for some unknown reason but it really went like super deep and I had to stand there and like have a moment with myself and I'm like he's not upset with you he's not like telling you that you're ugly he just doesn't like that shirt and you're two completely different people you don't have to like the same things yes but there is also something to be said about men not expressing their dislike for women's clothing and I like really stand by that so for all the men listening like if your girlfriend is wearing something or wants to buy something you don't like it's really none of your business but also we have to get in the habit of not asking them to (laughs) but but that's kind of what Jaji is saying right is like it is none of his business we're two different people and like I think that was a perfect example of the check the facts skill right like and the and the wise mind as well right like emotionally like how dare you say that I don't like this shirt I love this shirt so much and it's the greatest shirt I've ever seen but like rationally like I guess you don't have to like the shirt but I can still love it right like that's awesome so much skills use in that one little story Exactly. And then even kind of looking back at it, not that it had anything to do with like how he reacted to what it looked like, but I'm like, do I really have that much of an emotional like connection to that shirt? Like, do I like it enough? I don't know. And sometimes the answer is yes. (laughs) Like legitimately, sometimes the answer when it comes to clothing is like, yes, I legitimately am this emotionally attached to this piece of clothing and I need it. So whatever. I don't know if men get that as much. Like Aaron wears a black V-neck shirt and jeans 365 days of a year. And I'm good with that. Like, and he's good with that. Does not matter. Aaron's my partner. Sorry, Jadia. That's yeah. <laughs> um, so do you mind explaining a little bit about like 
what PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder looks like for you in your daily life or, and, or how it came about? Well, it's definitely changed over the years. Um, Beforehand, I couldn't, like, I'd probably go maybe a day or two before having a panic attack. They were pretty, they're pretty often, they were pretty prevalent, and they kind of had to do around, um, like, sexual things, especially with my previous partner, not the one that I'm with right now. Um, I would usually end up having a panic attack after we were done and um, I was taking a lot more medication than I am now. I'm still taking, you know, and there's nothing wrong with medication. I'm still taking medication. Um, but I have gone back to work. I work a full-time job. I have a healthy relationship, just kind of getting my PTSD kind of not under control because that puts a negative connotation on it, but more reliable to an everyday life, it's a lot better. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah, like, do we need to fix it if it's a natural trauma response, right? So just like being able to function better, I guess, is kind of the goal for you. Yeah, and I feel like that is even like the thing, like it's a natural response to your body going through something really like that it can't control. So it's going to do something to protect itself. And I think that was one of the big things for me is I wanted it to go away. I didn't want it to have happened. I wanted it to be completely done. And until like me and my therapist actually like sat down and it's like, this is how you're going to be forever, but you're going to learn better ways and you're going to learn so much more about yourself that I don't know, having PTSD isn't going to matter because it's going to kind of bring you into like, I don't know, kind of who you are, who you're meant to be. Yeah, for sure. And I think like a lot of us with borderline kind of feel similarly, right? Like, I mean, Sarah and I disagree on this, but like for me, I wouldn't part having BPD is just like part of who I am and I'm good with that. Right. Like, again, it's also in some ways like a natural response to your genetics and your environment and being able to like function as a person is great and like would recommend, but, um, but I don't want to take this part of me away either because it's not necessarily like a flaw. Like there's a lot of like beautiful things about having mental health challenges um, or a lot of protective things in the case of PTSD. Uh, I would like to probably watch a movie without crying, but that's one. It's like stupid things too. Like the little, like, like I can't watch up without bawling that darn movie (laughs) I'm like I don't even know why but I'm seriously like just like bawling and it's two minutes in I literally don't subject myself to situations like that like I don't watch movies I watch the same tv series over and over again because I know what to expect like Andrew and I went and saw this movie with Bradley Cooper in it 
And it was like a roller coaster, but basically like this guy becomes, he starts working for like a circus type deal. And he learns all these circus trick theme bobbers or something, magic tricks, I guess. And then he develops this addiction. And then across the movie at the very end, they basically trap him into being like this very abused circus performer guy that lives in a cage. And he accepts the role because of his alcohol use disorder. And so they're giving him this grain alcohol to like reinforce. I'm having like a visceral response, just like thinking about this guy's story and we left the movie theater and I was just like, I'm fucking wrecked. Like I cannot, I can't watch a movie without feeling the like severity of this person being in this cage because of the alcohol, because like, I just, I can't, I don't, I don't know how people watch. I don't, I've never seen up. I haven't seen frozen. I haven't seen any of the movies that people talk about. I just literally cannot feel those feelings. Totally. I'm the same. I, and I like, don't start watching new shows or new movies. And like every time Aaron will be like, Oh, like, do you want to like start a new show? Or like, when we get to the end of a current show, I like have literally like a physical reaction of anxiety about like, starting a new show or a new movie which is why I like I watch shows that have like 20 seasons so that I don't ever have to have that feeling I'm like ugh, I do not understand how people just like watch a different movie every night on Netflix I would die so I am a big IMDb parent guide user just because of how um what my trauma is related around and I absolutely love horror movies love them I'm a big scary movie person but I cannot watch a movie that has something like that in it um so I parent guide the shit out of things (laughs) that's smart yeah so how old were you when your trauma occurred because this is reminding me of a lot of like it's been a long time since I've had a ton of really strong PTSD symptoms but I remember being a teenager really living in the severity of PTSD symptoms on a daily basis and going to movie theaters and having like panic attacks in the movie theaters and having to run out of them. And just, just wondering like where in your life the trauma occurred that prompted these symptoms and how the symptoms have kind of changed over time for you. Um, I was 17. I think I was a junior, junior in high school, um, kind of near, the end of the year was a lot warmer. What grade is junior? Uh, 11. Okay, thank you. Sorry, I forgot about the difference. That's okay. I just, I like, I know that like half of our listeners are not going to know what that means. And I always forget. Wait, what is it? What is high school like in Canada? We just say like grade 11, grade 12, grade 13, or not grade 13, but grade 11, grade 12. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. I just needed to know that for context. <laughs> oh, um, I read a lot. I didn't have a lot of friends. I um, liked to watch a lot of TV shows. I liked to hang out by myself, hang out with people I knew. Um, the person that did that um, in high school to me, we had gone to school together since um, since kindergarten. So I knew him 
and he's in all my school pictures. So. Do you still live in the town where he lives? I don't know if he still lives here, but. Yeah, that has been a big part for me of like, you know, my family lives in Vancouver, which is just right across the bridge, but I don't go out in Vancouver. I don't go out to eat in Vancouver. I don't go to bars in Vancouver. Like I don't like to date people from Vancouver. I just have this very, like, I need the separation of the traffic and the bridge and the river. So just wondering what that has been like for you personally. For me personally, it is completely different than what it was before I used to only go to um, like the grocery store with headphones over my ears, um, like a big jacket on. And I would go during the times um, that I would feel that most of the people were not at the grocery store. Um, And then context to this last week, I went to Costco by myself. Um, but I wouldn't go out. I would stay home. I liked to DoorDash or deliver before DoorDash was a thing. It, I was a hermit. I wouldn't say agoraphobic, but I was probably getting close to it. Which those are like very classic symptoms of PTSD and meet the criteria of like avoiding external reminders or avoiding situations that prompt internal reminders of the trauma. And I should look up the stat because the the percentage of people with BPD and PTSD at the same time is like so high. I know that everybody listening is going to feel like such familiarity with the things that you're talking about. Well, and even for me, I don't have a PTSD diagnosis, but I'm still really resonating with a lot of these pieces. And I think like that's because part of BPD's creation, for lack of a better word, is is trauma, right? It just doesn't necessarily like manifest the same way for everyone. And I think like after like after being not alone, but after isolating yourself for so long, you kind of don't even remember like who you are because you haven't had any like of that external input for so long. Yeah. I, I talk a lot about like, because I've, I've had complex trauma across the lifespan, sexual trauma in my teen years, and then like very severe childhood trauma um, related to suicide and drugs and alcohol and things. And like, I very much think about my life as like Sarah under 12 and Sarah after 12, because every single thing about my life and my family system and my environment changed at 12 years old. And I think that like, that's a really hard thing for people to wrap their minds around when they haven't had complex trauma. I imagine like for Lori having a childhood where your parents were divorced, it was like life was very different pre-divorce and post-divorce, right? Whether or not you consider that trauma or PTSD, I don't, you know, I don't know. That's your thing. But like big events like that greatly shift our self-identity and the way we view the world. Yeah. I mean, my parents' divorce was definitely positive. So I don't know, like for me, but I, you know, being kicked out of the house and 
having to really like realize like, okay, so I can't live here anymore. The police have told me that very clearly. Uh, what the fuck am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And how am I going to either like, I either at this point, I'm either going to survive or I'm not going to survive. And like, that was the big moment for me, for sure. Probably had a very different life before this occurred at 17. I, that I was a lot more close to my family. I don't talk to my parents as much anymore. And especially going through like treatment and, and DBT and stuff, my mom would get so confused, I think, because she viewed therapy as happy and like getting better. She didn't, she didn't like that I had to get really sad and kind of dig pretty deep to get better she made the comment once why are you so sad I thought therapy was supposed to make you happy and that was kind of like when I realized that maybe my parents like I don't know as a young child you're they're so idolized I was like oh you're just kind of like me you're just a little older (laughs) Sure. That's such an interesting thing when you realize maybe your skill set surpasses the skill set of like the people who raised you, especially at a really young age. Um, (laughs) I have clients sometimes like that'll come back like within the first two months and just be like, this isn't working. Like, why am I not getting better? And it's like, well, sometimes like you get worse because we're digging up a lot of stuff. You get worse before you get better. That's just like kind of how it goes. I wonder too, what is the intersection of the religious? (laughs) My brain wants to say religious trauma, but I'm not going to say that, but like, what is the intersection of the kind of like relationship with religion and your household and your symptoms and your kind of experience in therapy? Ooh. Um, a lot of, before I went to therapy, um, my mom would tell me that I just needed, you know, to pray and ask for help and ask for guidance. And um, if I just pray hard enough and if I just really show that I'm like worthy, then I will get forgiveness and stuff like that. Um, The bad things happened to me because the devil saw a little like, an opening so he went in and got it or kind of just stuff like that everything happens for a reason yeah and as a person who's prone to feeling invalidated that feels so invalid I feel invalidated for you a hundred percent so what kind of um like what kind of religion or like what denomination I don't know how I'm not a religious person if you can't tell (laughs) what what's the like yeah you know what I mean my parents were just kind of like the normal normal non-denominational Christians they just I feel like they took it to a different level like I the tv shows that we watched when I was younger 
One of them was about this superhero called Bible Man. Oh my so, god, is this like Veggie Tales? Did you watch yeah. Veggie? Okay, so my aunt is like really religious, and like I tried to explain Veggie Tales to somebody the other day, and they were like, "What on earth are you talking about?" And I was like, "Did everybody not grow up watching Veggie Tales? Because like that is definitely a thing that I will never forget." <laughs> we had like the Bible on cartoon tape, like all the TV shows we watched when we were younger. Like we went to vacation Bible school. We like. I don't know. My parents praised me when I read like different chapters in the Bible. Like, oh, I, you know, I got through this many chapters. I'm right here. Like, oh, you know, you used to do so good at this. What happened was a lot of my childhood. Yeah. So just like intense invalidation in the name of religion, essentially. Yes. Yeah. Can we also just say, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know how people can read the Bible. It literally makes no sense, the language that is used. And like, like, I can't track any stories in the Bible. I think that's what Bible studies for though, right? Like to help, so people can like help you with that. I don't know. I like when I was a kid, we went to church and like, we would read the Bible and like. Really? Yeah. yeah. I did not know this about you. Yeah, it was like I clearly didn't buy it. Like they told me I couldn't read Harry Potter, and I was like, "Okay, fuck you, I'm out." That was basically what happened. <laughs> oh like, my god! My yeah. mom would take me to get the newest Harry Potter books the day they were like same. Published. But then church got mad at us for it, and then we were like, "Okay, bye." Um, I just started reading Harry Potter like maybe a few years ago. <laughs> Okay, and side note, she Laura, she's literally obsessed. Like she is our people. Like she she has like all of the Harry Potter merch. It's constantly being posted on her story. It's so cute. Can we talk about how those two tattoos you just showed me are literally the only two tattoos that I have ever considered getting? Like the wave, because like that is incredibly important to me, obviously. And then the Deathly Hollows. Like, come on now. Are we the same person? I love it. Well, and then I got the wave on my middle finger because, you know, like, fuck emotions. Um, <laughs> so there Love was that. a lot of meaning behind that one. That's amazing. Also, like, I, tell me how I'm planning to get, like, slut tattooed in red ink on my hip. And, and Lori's like, my first tattoo is going to be the Deathly Hallows. <laughs> so cute. <laughs> and I'll probably never do it. <laughs> but, like, in my head, I might do that. Oh my God, we could get you temporary tattoos though. Yeah, I've thought about it. I have. I have like, um, I've had like a million times like um, Dark Mark temporary tattoos for parties and they're so sweet. Yeah, because don't they have those ones that last for like ever? Yeah, those I don't have. I'm not fancy enough for that. But uh, they do. I think they do <laughs> have some that like last for like months. Um, I found a stat. So, and Lori, this is 2020 period. The estimated prevalence of BPD in the adult general population is um, around three and a half percent, but nine to 18% in adults in mental health treatment. PTSD prevalence worldwide among adults in the general pop- population are three to four and a half percent um, with 
up to 39% of folks in treatment. However, the comorbid percentage is 25 to 30% of adults who meet criteria for PTSD or BPD also have um, met criteria for the other. And 30 to 70% of adults diagnosed with BPD have had a PTSD episode at one point in their lifetime. But what is really beautiful about this is it says a 10-year follow-up of adults diagnosed with BPD found that 85% who had been initially diagnosed with PTSD were in remission from PTSD. And that's where I'm at. I don't currently meet the criteria for PTSD. And I think that a lot of our older folks with BPD are probably in that range too. Yeah, that's great. I I love data like that because like, I think for PTSD and BPD, there's a lot of like, well, you'll never be able to recover from it. And it's like, well, actually, like, depending on your definition of recovery, if it's based on the DSM criteria, like, that's apparently, it's super possible to recover from it. Um, Do you feel like you still meet the criteria, Jadzia? I was actually just thinking about that. Um, No, but also, I don't know, that's kind of hard. I don't have panic attacks. I mean, I had an argument with my boyfriend the other day, and whereas last year I had a panic attack in our last one, this one I was, you know, as fine as you can having an argument with someone you love. Um, I don't know, honestly. I was going to say, like, also having a panic attack here and then is just like being a human being, right? Like, that's and being a human being who has any sort of mental health challenge at all. Like, maybe there's people in the world who have never had a panic attack, but like, I don't know any of them. I think the other thing that is really interesting too, is like, you know, I just talked about how, like, I don't go to Vancouver. I don't go out in Vancouver or whatever. Sometimes I think we have built our lives around PTSD so much that we no longer experience the distress associated with the symptoms. I know that's very true for me. And I also know that like things that used to be very distressing and triggering to me, like sex used to be like very distressing and triggering to me no longer is. Um, but even just a few years ago, it, it ended up coming out after my divorce that my ex-wife admitted to me that the reason that she stopped having sex with me was because early on in our marriage and early on in our relationship, I was still having a lot of like very large emotional responses to sexual contact and that that was really triggering for her. How we feel about that is not important to this particular conversation, but like even just three years ago or so, I was still having those kind of responses and I'm not having them now. Um, Just kind of wondering, like, do you feel like you have built your life around it? Do you feel like you have less kind of like distress associated with being confronted with your PTSD? Do you think it's like a combo of the two? I definitely feel like it's a combo of the two. I think I have significantly less distress that and I've kind of um, gotten back from more like caring less about what other people think. But at the same time, that's also extremely hard to do. So (laughs) what have you found is the most kind of like helpful coping skill for not caring what people think? Because you're talking to a lot of people that are constantly seeking the validation of others, which means like, I need you to care about me. 
And I need you to care about me positively. And if you don't love me, never fucking talk to me again. On that, I make a mistake at work and I'm like, well, this is it. I'm done. I've, I've made a mistake. Everybody hates me. Like we're done. Whatever. Um, that, I don't know. It's so much easier to like in my personal life say that compared to in my work life where I'm not sure like who I am with therapy and everything. I've kind of based my like actual life and I've kind of been able to step back and say, hey, if you don't like me, these are my boundaries. Whereas at work, it's more like a parent child situation. And I don't have the best skills regarding that. So I get, I think, probably a little more triggered at work. Oh, my God. This is a big part of why I have to remain self-employed. I have folks that mentor me. And I have, you know, folks who, like, give some direction because of, like, the contract that I have. But I'm fully self-employed. I don't have a boss. And a big part of that is like, one, I have to be able to maintain my own schedule around my mental health because nothing about my day-to-day life is predictable. And I I cannot work an eight to five job without taking like a three-hour nap in the middle of the day. I just will not be a good employee. I won't function. But also like the, hey, can we meet today and chat about something? Email literally sends me into such a spiral that I can't function. And it's just like, it's just not effective for me to be employed by people because of that. So I feel you. Yeah. Those emails do that for me too. (laughs) And it happens all the time in like a, like nine to five, right? Like probably I get two of those a day. And um, you're just like, are you firing me? Did I screw something up? Am I going to jail? Am I blah, 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 blah. Do you hate me? are you mad at me? Like, you know, you have to be able to, I've, I just tell my, my, if I have a good relationship with my bosses, I just say like, Hey, can you not send me those emails? And just like, if, if you have to send me one of those emails, just be like, Hey Lori, like, do you mind if we just touch base for like five minutes this afternoon? Nothing important. Just like wanted to just have a conversation. You know what I mean? Like just kind of help me with that. Like you're not being fired upfront piece. Yeah. Those emails, man, they just, I can't, I can't do that. It's funny too, because if you're working in administrative healthcare and medical records, you're gonna fuck up. Sorry to tell you, but like you see so much information for so many different clients, patients, however you, whatever the like people, whatever the language is like, I think there's like a 40% of, um, like healthcare coding and like billing is wrong. Like I've seen crazy high stats. So like you're in a job where you're going to be constantly faced with that. Yeah. And I, um, actually the other day I got a nurse and she told me, she's like, your emails come across so rude. And I literally just right then like pit in my stomach, like, I walked into my boss's office and I was like, am I, am I a bad person? And I just bawled and I'm like, I'm so sorry. I know this is like a really small email and it shouldn't have gotten to me, but I literally, the rest of the day was ruined. Like I was, 
I was done. Yeah. And there's only so much that like fact checking and wise minds can do for you. Like, because the weird thing about feelings is that they just happen. Yeah. And sometimes you just have to experience them. Right. Or you can get drunk, have sex, get high, run away. None of which actually helps us in the long run. However, I spent many years doing that, right? Like this is where the maladaptive behavior comes in. Exactly. Well, that and part of, I think the thing is that I didn't want to feel anything to begin with. And a huge part of my healing has come from actually sitting in my feelings and being uncomfortable. It is shitty to cry in front of somebody. It's shitty to cry anyway, especially at work, because then I feel like less of a. Nobody else cries at work or that I see. I'm sure people do. But why do I have to do it in front of other people? And then I just have to remember that it is an emotion. And what I go through based on what I have gone through is actually pretty damn amazing to be like kind of where I am um now if I could just think like that all the time we'd be completely set I know like louder for the people in the back like (laughs) she just said where she is at is damn amazing can we just celebrate that and that's the the hard thing you feel like you would have been able to say that two years ago three years ago no I honestly thought I would probably be in to north three years ago forever to north is the um one of those like floors here at one of our local hospitals I was putting that together I was like that sounds like a psychiatric facility (laughs) have you been hospitalized I have I have been hospitalized three times um one was voluntary and the other two were um due to suicidal ideation and it attempts. Do you mind giving us a little bit of like your experience with hospitalization? And was it like a 5150? Were you on like a hold or was it just like a 24 hour? Like how long were you hospitalized for when it was not your decision? When it was not my decision, it was a 72 hour hold. Um, So I have been at the the two north area twice. Um, the first time it was that 72 hour hold. And then the second time it was voluntary and it was over the weekend. So it was from um, Friday to Monday. Um, and then there are some other times where it was just like one night where I just think I was getting so triggered with my previous partner that that was the way out for me I think if that makes sense oh absolutely anytime I want to die which is often um in fact I'm just like this morning starting to come out of like a two-day just pure like 48 hours straight of like, I can't do this anymore. This has to end. Like death is the only way out kind of place. Yeah. It's almost always because of interpersonal things. It's like my inability to regulate in interpersonal relationships or connections makes me feel like 
everything is going to end. Nobody is going to love me. I'm not okay. Blah, blah, blah. Oh my God. How funny. I just got a news alert saying like something about mental health hospitals. Um, (laughs) that was very, uh, big brother. Yeah. Poignant. (laughs) So when you were hospitalized against your will, um, which is a very kind of It's a very political experience, I think. Um, What was that like for you? So my my best friend at the time um, made me go in and then she called my parents and my parents came and I was honestly probably so happy when my parents left they made it such a huge deal my mother was like oh my gosh my poor baby my dad didn't make any emotion but that's kind of part for the course for for dads from that time um but it felt it felt de- like kind of dehumanizing because you have to like stripped down and they give you these paper scrubs and you're in a room with a camera you have like this shitty bed bench thing like it's just it's in a way it's so dehumanizing but at the same time it is strangely and oddly comforting to be not in control or at least it was at that moment to not be in control of what happens next because I knew if I was in control of what happened next it probably wouldn't have ended the way I would want it to looking back now yeah interesting I had the exact opposite experience where it made me more suicidal but like man they fucking inventory your bobby pins like they're like take out all of your piercings and I'm like how would you like me to take out the dermals anchored into my chest man like what do you want me to do with these you know like are we gonna scalpel these out of me like what do you think I'm gonna do with this I know how did you get those out or did they let you keep them in um oh my god it was so long ago And I'm the kind of person too, where like I had an appendectomy and I was like, you are not taking out my belly button rings, like go around it. And they were like, well, we have to. And I was like, no, I accept full responsibility. You are not taking these out of my body. So I I'm like very adamant about not fucking with my body jewelry. Um, but yeah, they took everything out. I don't remember the dermals. They must've taken maybe the tops off of them. Yeah. But like they weren't going to scalpel them out of me, you know, like I, what were they going to put in their chart notes about that? Yeah, I think maybe the comforting feeling came from the fact that I helped be like the big sister, the second mom or whatever for so long in my childhood that finally not having to do anything and like taking that away and being away from my parents because up until I lived with my boyfriend I have lived with my parents it it was it was nice I didn't 
I didn't have to worry about anybody else but myself. And I think that was the big thing. Totally. Have you ever had an apartment on your own? I have for like maybe half a year in between living with my parents. I went and I had an apartment. I had a roommate, had two roommates. They were, they were terrible. Probably was some of me because I was not yet in DBT. Um, So I will take responsibility for that. Um, And then I moved back in with my parents. Okay. Got it. Until I met my um, significant other. You guys are so cute, by the way. I can't even stand it. Please don't get (laughs) engaged anytime soon because I just can't watch another person get engaged without like having to unfollow them. So if you guys could just like wait for a little bit for me so that you and I can stay friends, that'd be great. Um, cause it's just like way too triggering when anyone gets engaged or married or has babies that I have to unfollow them because I'm a piece of shit. So, um, but at some point in your life, if you like have the financial ability, you should get an Airbnb on your own for one month. Like I think everybody needs the experience of living alone, no roommates, no partner, no family, like complete control of your environment. It's so healing. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be really freeing to have like um like complete control over what it would look like. It's great. I love living alone. In fact, if I just like thinking about the future and partnering, I'm like, man, could I like just buy a house next to my partner? Or like, you know, I don't know. Like my my boyfriend Andrew and I now when we talk about purchasing a home in the future, it very much is like, there has to be some sort of separate living space, whether it's my van, whether it's like a garage loft we build, whether it's just like a she shed in the backyard, but like something for me, because I cannot be constantly in the same confined space with someone. It does not work out well for me. Could you do like a, um, like a mother-in-law's what do they call it? A mother-in-law's cottage or a mother-in-law's it's like the loft above. It would have to be a loft above a detached garage. Yeah. There has to be like that space for me, whether it's like walking across the backyard or in and out. Like I just, I cannot have a space that I can't lock. That is completely my own. I just like, won't, I just won't function. And I probably wouldn't even use it that often, but I just need that. You need to have that option, the ability to be like, I can't with you. Peace out. Yeah. People ask me all the time why I haven't sold my van. And I'm like, I am literally never going to not have the option to safely leave and go stay somewhere. Like, I understand it's maybe weird that it's my daily driver, although I don't drive very much, but like, I'm not selling my van to buy a fucking Corolla. Like I have to have this vehicle just for my own safety. Hey, my grandma was badass and drove around her camper van, even though she had a house just because she liked to drive it. I don't know why, but she drove it. So it kind of sounds the same. And she was very, she was very strong. Yeah. What is your relationship with your parents like now? Um, I don't talk to my father at all. Um, 
and I have a civil relationship with my mother. Is this something you feel like comfortable chatting about just really briefly, or is this a boundary for you? Um, I feel comfortable chatting about it. It's fine. Yeah. A lot of our folks, when I say folks, like I, I mean, like our super feelers and a lot of our listeners have done periods of no contact or contemplating periods of no contact or kind of like somewhere in the middle. So I just wonder what has that been like for you to not have contact with your dad and to have like minimal or quote unquote civil contact with your mom? Like how has that changed your symptoms? It has made me stronger in my, my, like um, my boundary setting skills for sure. Especially with my mom. I recently had to tell her, Hey, you can't just stop my, by my work. You can't just like walk in without saying, Hey, can I come over? Um, she, we talk very less than we used to. And sometimes I have to fight like a lot of guilt about that. Oh, Hey, they raised me. I need to be their good child. I need to, I don't know, do everything for them. Um, not talking to my dad has shown a lot about me to myself, but it's also been very gut-wrenching at times because I feel like him not reaching out to me kind of shows that I need to continue not to talk to him because I'm not worth him. Like, I don't know, trying to have a relationship with me when we were best friends when I was younger. So. Yeah, that's been really hard for me as well. Like learning, I can't give more than I'm receiving. I'm not going to carry the relationship for us on my back, especially when you don't have any insight or understanding what my lived experience is like. And it makes you feel so uncomfortable when you hear me that you can't respond. Yeah. Well, and the big, the big things that, um, if he brought a lot of invalidation, like when I told him about my, my trauma Um, he said, what were you drinking? So the biggest thing with that is he's always invalidated everything that has happened to me that I kind of just stopped going. I can't make excuses for you anymore. And I like confronted him. He invalidated me again. And I was like, we are, I don't have anything else. Like I've given all that I can. And I need to parent myself now and not parent my parents. Yeah. Oh, I need to parent myself and not parent my parents. That's huge. Also, can it be said that any trauma or like non-consensual touch, um, it doesn't matter if you're drunk or drinking. It doesn't matter if you were consensually engaging at one point, like none of those things matter. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my friend, there's been a lot in your life that I did not know about and was not expecting we were going to talk about today. Uh, the, the, the pleasures of Instagram versus reality. 
I know. Right. Isn't that so (laughs) funny? I have so many people that I think of as like good friends that I've never met in real life because of social media. And on the one hand, I'm very grateful. And on the other hand, I'm very aware of how like compartmentalized and like real, but not real. Those relationships are. Yeah. Compartmentalized. So like, what is it? A four by six square, I think. Yeah, totally. It's very strange. And they're like such beautiful and wonderful relationships, but like you just can only do so much in the DMs, right? Exactly. <laughs> Although like there's some like hetero cis men that are doing a lot in the DMs. <laughs> uh, yes. That and a lot of uh, thirst traps on TikTok. Yeah, I'm not I'm too old to be on TikTok. I tried it like twice and I was like, this isn't gonna work for me. <laughs> don't don't do it. Yeah, no, no. So do you have any like final thoughts or words of wisdom or advice for our folks listening? I think that they're really going to resonate with this trauma talk. You're always going to be healing. I feel like I wish somebody would have told me that and it's not going to be fun at times. It's going to suck and it's not going to feel good, but it's also going to feel really good. It's such a dialectic. (laughs) It is definitely a dialectic. It's healing is going to be one of the best things and one of the worst things I feel like, but it's going to teach a lot about like yourself and your um, kind of who you are. Totally that resilience. Yeah. One final question for you. What are your thoughts about radical acceptance? (laughs) um I love radical acceptance I'm not the best at it because I have a lot of but oh but oh why but but why did they do this um but it is definitely a skill that I think I'm going to continue having to work on totally it's funny because my like 48 hours of just like pure I need out of this life Um, which for anyone listening, I am safe. We're good. But like, it was prompted by someone bringing up radical acceptance to me. And I was like, we, I don't remember what we were talking about, but they were like, well, isn't that like where radical acceptance comes in? And I was like all lounging and happy on the couch. And I get up and I sit on the floor and I was like, I don't know. What do you think about radical acceptance? Like, and they were, they said something and I was like, well, you obviously are fucking so skilled in DBT. Why don't you explain to me what radical acceptance was? Like everybody knows I struggle with it so much. And it was so triggering to hear someone say like, well, isn't that where radical acceptance comes in? And I'm like, fuck you. Don't tell me about radical acceptance. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I don't, I think radical acceptance, the first time I did DBT was probably the bane in my existence. (laughs) Everybody knows how I feel about it. So um, it's funny because I like specifically wrote it as a journal prompt in my kind of like bullet journaling thing of like, what can I radically accept this week? Like I have to radically accept that I have to work on radical acceptance. (laughs) Hey, it still works. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my friend, I cannot wait to meet you in person. When I get my van going south sometime in the fall, probably do like a 
California, New Mexico, Arizona loop thing. Maybe I can hit Medford on the way and we can grab some coffee or um, chat Harry Potter or whatever. I just adore you. Yes, please. All of the above. (laughs) Be so fun. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time and we'll talk to you next time. Hi, friends. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bold, Beautiful Borderline podcast. Lori and I are so grateful that you're here with us on this journey, and we can't wait to dive into more topics in the future with you all about Borderline and even have some more fun and exciting guests to join us on the podcast. If you really enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. We would also love to see you interact with us on social media and on our Patreon page. The links to that are included in the show notes, so check us out there. We would be incredibly honored to get to know you all as you get to know us and our recovery stories. We love you, and we'll see you next time.